both at that frontline primary care level and at the academic levels, it was easy to find physicians who denied that there was significant disease arising from coal mine employment. Welcome to the ACO Show. This is the final of our three-part series on healthcare and climate change. Today, Josh is joined by Dr. Daniel Doyle, a family physician at New River Health Association in Scarborough, West Virginia. The conversation covers some of the health impacts of coal mining, including the history of black lung disease and the complicated relationship between the coal mining industry, the healthcare sector, and the economy in West Virginia. I'm Josh Israel, and I'm joined now by Dr. Daniel Doyle. Dr. Doyle is a family physician at New River Health Association in Scarborough, West Virginia. Welcome. Morning, Josh. Good to be here. You've been practicing in that region for a long time, and given that it's coal country, you've dealt a lot with black lung. Uh, We're talking today about some of the environmental impacts on health, so I'd love to hear not just your experience treating it, but I, I understand you know a lot about the history from a legislative point of view as well, so I'd love to dive into that. So you, you mentioned environmental impacts, and in this case, I think, and there are significant environmental impacts of coal mining, both underground and surface coal mining uh, throughout the world, but in particular in the United States, and we're talking about the uh, Appalachian region. But in this case, we're talking more about uh, human health impacts. And one of the great human health impacts of, of underground and to some degree surface coal mining has been occupational dust-related lung disease in miners. And that comes in the form of uh, inhaled coal dust, especially for people working underground near the face of the mines. But it also comes from people working on the surface because they have to do a lot of drilling. So what people call surface mining or strip mining or mountaintop removal is another form of coal mining that has really important uh, lung effects for miners. And uh, that's had diff- different names over the years. And it has even been actually denied by medical experts over the years. And that gets into the whole social dimension of, of coal miners' lung disease. But one of the terms that grew out, not so much from the medical community as from the, the people. Uh, the miners themselves and their families was this term black lung. And that term arose in the mid-1960s, and it was actually encoded into federal legislation, which passed in 1969 as the Federal Black Lung Act. And black lung really means any kind of coal dust-related lung disease uh, that miners incur over the years. It used to seem like it, it was much more likely to happen after many years of exposure. Um, in recent years, like the last 10, we've really been concerned that much younger miners are getting the most severe form of coal mine dust disease, which is known as complicated pneumoconiosis or progressive massive fibrosis. So the total number of coal miners has gone down in the United States since the 1950s. Back in the 50s, it was like there were like 500,000 coal miners in the United States. Now there's probably maybe 50,000. And in West Virginia, I think we have about 15,000. The total number of miners has gone down. So that means the disease burden has gone down. But the severity of disease uh, in young miners or in all miners, and especially in young miners, has become much worse 
And there's reasons for that, but that's the reality we're facing right now. You would think from the way politicians talk about coal in West Virginia that every single person in West Virginia was a coal miner. Why does it get so much press and publicity if it's really just down to 15,000 people doing it? Well, one reason is that there's 15,000 people as designated coal miners, but the impact of the industry expands far beyond them because much of the economic activity um, related to coal mine isn't just in the miners. It's all the companies that provide supplies. It's all the companies that provide technical support like pump companies and electrical companies. There's a lot more economic activity related to coal mining than just the miners themselves. And then um, it's the miners, the working miners who are buying trucks and who are buying groceries and who are receiving health care. Um, I think to a large extent, the whole healthcare sector as it currently exists in West Virginia, all the hospitals, all the specialists, all the doctors really got there because of the um, healthcare insurance and healthcare services that were generated by the mining industry. So the overall impact of the mining industry has diminished in West Virginia, and there's a lot of soul searching and talk about economic diversification in West Virginia and what's our future. But even today, the economic impact is much greater than just the miners themselves. So that's a key topic because we talk about um, moving to cleaner jobs and moving to industries that don't have such health impacts. Um, but there's resistance. Can you speak to some of that? You know, when I hear people talking about um, wanting to keep coal jobs, my thought is those are really hard jobs. Those are really risky jobs. Why are people fighting for them? There's a couple of things. Uh, probably the most important thing is that um, working as a coal miner is one of the best, it is the best paying job in West Virginia for someone who has only a high school education, and sometimes that's even a GED degree. So a big part of the answer is that it's one of the very few jobs in West Virginia that one can make a very good living with good benefits with a high school education. There aren't many other jobs like that in the state. And so the people who have those jobs are understandably hanging on to them because the alternative is either to have their income cut from something like $80,000 a year to $30,000 a year doing other available service sector jobs here, if there's a job at all, and that wouldn't have the same benefits. That's one reason. And then, and, and the other thing for many people who, who lose that job is if they're in their 50s or older, they have almost no job possibilities than being a greeter at Walmart um, or something like that. It's hard. There's just nothing else available. And so that's why people hang on to those uh, so strongly, despite the dangers, despite the health hazards. There are many miners that we know in their 50s and 60s who already have black lung disease and continue working. They don't have, and even some who have complicated pneumoconiosis and have trouble walking up a hill. They keep on working because the alternative is to, is to go from middle-class income and quality of life to poverty um, almost overnight. And the other thing is that there's the family history and tradition and it's familiar and it's a source of pride. That's another reason why people stick at it but I think that's less so than just the basic economic fact of standard of living and quality of life and income.
not so different from the healthcare system where we we know what might be good as a whole, but the individual actors in the system may be having a pretty good thing going, um, and the change would really affect them disproportionately. So it's hard to hard to make these changes. Uh, you'd mentioned initially there was some resistance to even acknowledging the existence of black lung disease. I understand that some of it even came from the unions. Can you speak to that history a little bit? There was a long historical struggle, especially in the Appalachian coal mining region, and that was centered in West Virginia, Eastern Kentucky, uh, Southwest and Central Pennsylvania, to gain recognition of coal mine dust lung disease as a real disease, a scientifically, medically real disease, and then to have it ruled as a compensable disease. For a long time, um, the coal operators in the coal industry denied that there was any compensable, that there was any real lung disease arising out of coal mine employment. And I'm sad to say that that major sectors of the of, of medicine, both university-based medicine and frontline primary care medicine, which in, in our region was coal camp doctors who actually worked directly for the coal company. Um, but both at that frontline primary care level and at the academic levels, it was easy to find physicians who denied that, that there was significant disease arising from coal mine employment. And it's a, it's a pretty powerful example of the fact that science is contextual and that and that what your perspectives as a scientist for example a university-based pulmonologist or even occupational medicine specialist or industrial hygienist that what that your perspective is shaped by social factors and so there was a huge economic incentive to deny that this existed um, and people were lined up who did deny that it existed and meanwhile there were families and miners who were experiencing, who knew it was real. And finally, they found some allies in physicians. One of the most famous was a pulmonologist in Beckley, West Virginia named Dr. Donald Rasmussen. And in the 60s, he began publishing articles in the standard pulmonology literature, but also worked directly with miners and miners' families and black lung associations that became organized in the 60s. And, and little by little, they were able to convince Congress that this really existed and legislation was passed. But it took a combination of outlier physician scientists who were willing to kind of go against the economic currents and say, wait a minute, this is real, I'm seeing this, and get it into the scientific literature. And then people's organizations, the Black Lung Associations, and them connecting to Congress and then, as often happens, it took some publicized tragedies. Um, the most famous was the Mannington Mine Disaster, which occurred, I think, in 1968, where um, I believe it was 79 miners died. And that propelled the passage of legislation, both in West Virginia and in the Congress in 68 and 69. Um, and so, and, and as far as the opposition of the union, um, the union mainly, the United Mine Workers of America in, in the 50s and 60s under the leadership of John Lewis mainly focused on economic issues and they were doing so well with those that they set aside health issues. And it wasn't until this black lung movement that the union became more active in pursuing uh, 
black lung as a real disease and compensable disease. For a disease that's not that common around the country, most people have heard of it. I think some of that is just because the name itself is so evocative. Um, you know, it's such a, a powerfully named disease. What's it like for those who have it and how do you treat it? So uh, what it's like, and, and as usual, um, you know, this is a person who hasn't experienced the disease trying to talk about what it's like, but as a physician who's taken care of many minors and continue to take minor, care of minors with black lung disease, it's a gradual thing of, I can't play football or basketball or in the church softball league anymore like I was when my, in my 20s and 30s. I'm just getting more short of breath. Uh, I can't walk uh, back up the hill from the mailbox as easy as I used to. I can't climb those four flights of stairs at the coal company cleaning plant without having to stop and get my breath. They notice it gradually. And generally, some of them will realize it's the dust and some of them will just say it's old age. But you have 40-year-olds and 50-year-olds say, I'm getting old. Then it's, it steadily can get worse. Just like with COPD, sometimes they get hospitalized with, with wheezing or pneumonia. Or, but, but usually it's just your breathing is slowing you down. Your breathing is slowing you down. But you keep working anyway because you feel like you have no choice. And there's a definitely a certain amount of, of an ethic of self-sacrifice and heroism in that group. I'm doing this for my family, um, and I, I'm going to keep going as long as I can. Eventually, you go to the doctor. He gives you an inhaler. Hopefully, the doctor says, you know, you may have a black lung disease. Let's do a breathing test and an x-ray. But it's like having gradual onset COPD. Um, gradually losing your breath. Um, and the question is just how far it goes before you get treatment. But all of our medical treatments don't stop the progression if you're still going in that dust every day. And, and sometimes even when people come out, there is a progressive inflammatory fibrotic process that keeps going even after exposure ends. But definitely reducing and ending exposure is the most important thing as far as treatment. And, and just for the medical people, treatment is no different from the treatment that you would treat with COPD or somebody with um, restrictive disease as well, because some of it's restrictive, not just obstructive. You see it, 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 it can be obstructive, it can be restrictive, it can be mixed. And you, it's all the usual tools. Unfortunately, there's no special tools except reducing exposure. Dr. Daniel Doyle, family physician in Scarborough, West Virginia. Thanks for speaking with me. It was interesting, I learned a lot. Thank you, Josh. Keep up the good work. This episode of The ACO Show was produced by Brittany Barnes and Hannah Posner. Our theme music is by Donna Korn. You can find previous episodes on our website, alladay.com, or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. ACO Show.